0: We're in Philippians 2, no changes there. But we're in a place that I didn't think we were going to be in today as we continue through our journey. Most of you perhaps would have been expecting us to continue in our journey of Timothy Part 2. We began that uh, not long ago. And uh, I had every intention when I began studying this week to continue uh, to look at Part 2 of Timothy's life. But as I continued to look at the word and study it, I came across something that I had not really seen before, uh, which forms a little intermission between part one and part two of Timothy's story in the book of Philippians. So Philippians chapter two, we're going to read from verse 19, please, through to verse 24. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse 19, the Apostle Paul in Rome writes this. And I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. Unless you are looking carefully, you may have missed the text. The text that we're going to look at today is verse 21. Found in between two complementary verses about this man, Timothy. Verse 21 says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Christ. Today we come to a portion of scripture that is without doubt one of the saddest in the book of Philippians. We have compliments about Timothy in verse 20 and further compliments about Timothy in verse 22 and sandwiched in the middle is this devastating truth by Paul regarding the servants of Christ who had abandoned their spiritual posts to pursue self-interests. see that for they all seek their own interests not those of jesus christ and so as i said we're going to take a short intermission today between our study on timothy part one and part two and we're going to focus on this one comment made by the apostle paul here in verse 21 and may i say at the forefront at the uh at the introduction here that this is not simply a commentary on Rome in that day, but as much, if not more, a commentary on Australia today. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The word all clearly does not mean all in the sense of every single minister in all of the world at that time and we know that because he's just spoken about Timothy and he's about to speak about Epaphroditus and in just a few verses he's going to speak about the uh, the household of Caesar and the saints that are in his household so we're not talking here Paul is not saying that everyone in all the world has clearly forsaken the things of God that's not what he's saying but he's saying where I am now in Rome Everybody's left their posts. Everybody is interested only in their own self-serving and not that which relates to the Lord Jesus. In fact, the wording in the original Greek has the idea and indicates that Paul was looking for a man in the church at Rome who he could send to the believers at Philippi to be a blessing and a help and an encouragement to them, but none were willing to embark on this three-week journey save timothy nobody else and in fairness it was a perilous journey fraught with danger and personal injury or death was a real possibility but let's fast forward for a moment let's fast forward from rome in 60 a.d where the apostle paul there from which he is writing all the way through to 2015 a.d today and I believe we find that the spiritual climate of our day is no different. Where are God's people who are truly committed to his cause? Where are the spiritual servants who are devoted to the kingdom of God? Where are those who have hazarded their lives in the cause of Christ? As Acts 15, 6 says, Where are the true disciples who have left off ease, safety, pleasure, personal gain in the service of Jesus Christ? We are living in perilous times, church. We are living in times of such distraction. We're living in times where it's not The done thing to totally give oneself to God's service. But we find in the scriptures that to pursue our own interests is to disregard our discipleship. Did you hear that? To pursue our own interests is to disregard our discipleship. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, I'm going to explain it. To disregard our discipleship is to return to a place of spiritual slavery from whence we were saved. It's to enthrone myself and to dethrone Jesus Christ. We could use another word to describe this which is simply idolatry. Idolatry is simply loving anything more than God. And if you are honest and if I am honest we do this. I do this. I am one of the pastors at this church and I am constantly wrestling with idolatry. I'm wrestling with self I'm wrestling with my own flesh. I'm wrestling with enthroning myself, dethroning Christ because I think I'm number one often and I'm not. Interesting to note this down if you've never seen this before. We are one of two types of Christian. We are either a Philippians one twenty one Christian, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, or a Philippians 2.21 Christian, for they all sought their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. I wonder which we are. Are we Philippians one twenty one? for to me to live is Christ, And to die is gain. Or they all sought their own interests and not the things of Jesus Christ. This morning I am preaching what I think is a hard-hitting message. It certainly was for me as it was preached to myself in the study yesterday and the day before. And it's entitled, The High Cost of Being a Disciple. The High Cost of Being a Disciple. A disciple, please do not be under any illusion about true discipleship. It's not something you add to your life. It's not something that's a part of your life. It's not something that even you are going to take most of your time and be a bit of a preoccupation. We're talking about the high cost, which is everything. Discipleship costs everything. Anything less than everything is not true discipleship. And so this morning I want to talk and preach on this subject of the high cost of being a disciple. If anybody happened perchance last week to read the newsletter, thought for the week, you will already be a little bit ahead because I wrote some of the thoughts in that last week as the Lord was preparing my heart for this week. Heavenly Father, again, I I beseech you and ask for your help. uh, That Lord, I would not treat this subject as some kind of hobby horse. Uh, that, Lord, I would not for a moment assume that uh, I do not struggle with this, uh, but that I would realize so so quickly as I continue to preach uh, that of all people that need this, it's me. And that these, my brothers and sisters, might be helped and encouraged in your word because of the very struggles and wrestles that I'm having. Help me to communicate this not in condescension, but as one who also often needs to strip idols from the heart. Lord, we pray that we as a local assembly at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church would be given over to true discipleship and all that that entails. Pray again that you would help this message be communicated effectively and that you'd use it greatly in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by just giving you the first point here this morning. There's only two points. There's a couple of sub points. But the first point that I want you to note is just simply the meaning of discipleship. The meaning of discipleship. Before we can even understand what the high cost of being a disciple is, we have to understand, well, what is a disciple? And may I say to us today, there are all sorts of ideas of what discipleship and being a disciple is. And we're not interested in taking our cues from the culture. We're not interested in taking our definitions from the church. We want to know what did the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ say discipleship is. That's where we take our cues. And so I want to give that to us this morning. It is one of the most misused terms in the modern church, this word discipleship. Here's why. Most Christians define discipleship in terms of a course or a mini series or a modules that are given to new Christians to help them get along in their Christian life. Okay? If we're honest, some of you are going to nod your head and say that's what I've heard all my life because it's true. That's what a lot of people think. Can I say that is nothing further from the truth? That is so completely wrong. That we need to recalibrate our thinking instantaneously at the start of this message. Discipleship is not a course. It's not a series of modules. Discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is a life. Discipleship is a life. It begins at the moment of our conversion when we first understand who Jesus is and what he's done. And we are saved from our sin and we are birthed into the kingdom of God, John chapter 3, where we are born again. Uh, And in 1 Peter we find born again by the incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. When that takes place, when that happens, when the spirit comes to reside within us, we are at that moment first a disciple. And that continues right until... Our glorification when we see Christ in our new body. Discipleship is conversion to consummation of our faith. That's discipleship. In other words, discipleship is simply the Christian life. That's what discipleship is. It's another way of saying that. We must understand that. But the word disciple, it literally means someone who's a follower, a learner or a pupil. Anybody who follows you in anything can be a disciple. Most of you know I play some squash. If I was to teach someone, if someone were to come along and say, I want to learn from you, it would be right in the English to say, I have a disciple in squash. I'm going to show them some technique. I'm going to show them how they can play the game. And they're going to be my disciple in squash in a simple sense. But in the Christian realm, discipleship is not a fad. It's a lifelong pursuit. And you say, well, how is that the case? Surely when you play squash with someone, if they get better than you, then uh, they're no longer your disciple. Well, that's true. But you know what happens in the Christian life? Our discipleship is in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will never pass him. That's why discipleship is for life, because I'm a follower of one who's perfect and becoming more and more like him, but I will never get to that place in this life. So discipleship is an ongoing, present, continuous reality in the life of a Christian because of who the master is. It is marshalling all of our energies and powers to achieve the final goal, and that final goal is none other than Christ's likeness in fact the bible tells us it is enough for a disciple to be like the master that's the point discipleship is all about what we are to become i'm to become a better squash player i'm to become a better teacher of the person who wants to learn and so on but discipleship is becoming like that individual to whom i am following close behind now here's a sad reality i believe I believe the world has a better understanding of discipleship than the church does in many instances. Let me give you some illustrations. Let me give you the modern football disciple. Here's what they look like. They spend thousands of dollars every year purchasing their membership. They have the latest jerseys, the latest colours, the newest logo on that jersey that they've bought. They attend every game without fail. Their life is based around the football calendar as opposed to anything else. They dress up for the occasion. You've seen some of these people on television. I mean, like, they are serious about this football game. They scream the name of their hero at the top of their lungs. They wave banners. They'll even throw things at the opposition and get fined for it just because they want to do it. They'll even start brawls and fights in the grandstand because someone said something about their hero on the football field. It happens in the news pretty regularly. The football disciple. We know that image, don't we? We've seen that image of what that disciple. Their, their face is painted, and they're just—they're just. This is this is life. And to see that person there, or to see that team, and to be a part of that, and to be involved in that victory is, oh! Why doesn't that cross over? Why do I not have the same passion as a football game? This is nothing in the scheme of eternity. Let me give you another illustration of discipleship in the world today. What about the financial disciple? The financial disciple looks like that individual who gets up really early every morning, probably somewhere in uh, Metro Melbourne, and they catch the train to work every single day. And they work eight to 12 hours every single day of their life uh, during the weekdays and probably a lot on the weekends because they want to be able to afford the best things in life. They've got a great share portfolio. They've got great collection of suits. They've got an immaculate house. Uh, they've got all of those things so that they are comfortable and they are preparing constantly for that time of retirement when that's over and they are able to live to the best of their ability in their, their retirement. Spend their free time reading the financial times. They acquaint themselves with the latest shares and opportunities and investments. And they are a financial disciple. They just, I just want to make this work. And their life is spent in that pursuit. We know those people. We've seen those people. What about the fitness disciple? The fitness disciple is that person in in the world who gets up at the crack of dawn and all that they are concerned about is how good they feel and how good they look. That's their life. And so they're out on the treadmill day in, day out. They're lifting, they're bench pressing, they're doing everything possible to develop this external shell of a person in order to feel good because they believe that's the key to happiness and sex appeal in this life. They clad themselves with the appropriate attire. They've got the right brands on. Okay, They're wearing the right brands. I mean, they're not wearing much at all if you look at them. But what they're wearing, they've got the right brands on. And everybody knows them. They've got large biceps. They've got strength in the human realm that is greater than anybody else's. They plan their food diet meticulously. They count every carb. They count every single thing that they possibly can that is going to cause them any grief in their desire to be a fitness idol and they strive to emulate a life like those mentors in the fitness realm you get the picture of a disciple would to god oh would to god that we would operate with the same passion for jesus christ not for church not for ministry not for the outworkings, which are often a great replacement, but for Jesus Christ. To walk with Him. To scream His name out in the crowd. To look like Him. To pursue Him wholeheartedly. Let me say it a different way. A disciple is not a bystander. A disciple is not an observer. Discipleship is not a one-day-a-week program it's not attendance to church it's not going to the bible study that's all part and parcel to help me with your discipleship but what i seem to see in the world of christianity today is that if i will attend church once on a sunday and 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 that'll get me through the week and and your discipleship is not sunday Your discipleship is not Monday at Bible study. Your discipleship is a life spent pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is my life. Colossians chapter 3 says. When He who appears, He is my life. That is discipleship. But that is not the pervasive Christian norm of our day. We must not Define discipleship in terms of what we observe in Christianity today. We need to somehow we need to remove from our thinking all of these false ideas that come in that somehow give us the the idea of what the ultimate disciple is. This is what the ultimate disciple is. We need to get away from that and get to the word and say, Okay, Lord Jesus, what is true discipleship? And that's what we want to look at this morning. Because we must understand this reality because otherwise we will end up like those ones in Rome who are just simply saying, I'm here, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm here, but I'm not prepared to take the journey. I'm not prepared to serve the Lord in this way. I'm not prepared to follow the Lord Jesus in this things. I want to ser- serve myself and my own interests. We will end up there if we don't make an active stand to follow Christ. And that's the call for us. That's the meaning of discipleship. The second and only other thing I want to look at today is the mandates of discipleship. We have the meaning, hopefully you get the idea of what that is, but now the mandates. What did Jesus say a disciple really is? What were the commands given? And by the way, let me say, they were commands. These are imperatives we're going to look at. This is not something that we have the choice to think about. It's not something we say, well, I can take it or leave it. I have a choice here. These are, If you're a disciple, if you say, I am one of His, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb, He is my Lord, then these are commands this is what you will do and with all the authority of heaven and the power of God's word I am able to say I command you based on scripture to do these things not because the power resides in me but because it's in God's word and this is what he commands of his disciples see how this can be fairly hard-hitting this is not self-authority here this is God's word and we're going to look so, as we look at the mandates of discipleship, I want you to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 9. It was this passage a couple of weeks ago that uh, really, for want of another term, destroyed me. It caused me all kinds of grief as I realized that I was not really operating as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at three specific distinctions or mandates of true discipleship found in this text luke chapter 9 and verse 23 and if you find your place there you can pretty much park there we'll go a couple of other places but this is where we're going to be for the remainder of the message luke chapter 9 verse 23 the lord jesus and he said to all all that were there if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me the kingdom of God. We're going to take our mandates from verse 23 where the Lord Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now would be a very good time to leave because at the end of this message, you will have been given three commands that you must obey as a Christian. Uh, and before I go into them, uh, you may want to make that decision because this is this is life changing, this right here, what it is to be a disciple. And so the first thing I want us to note from Luke 9, verse 23, self-denial. If it were just one, it would be enough for us to feel uncomfortable. If anyone would come after me, let him deny me himself. Interestingly, the words come after form the very concept of discipleship. To come after is not a distant coming after. The literal meaning there is to literally walk directly afterwards. It's to attach yourself closely behind someone. So we are talking here about discipleship. The Lord Jesus talking to the crowd says, if you would follow me, not from a distance, not in some some abstract sense, if you would be like me if you truly want to live and follow and pursue me this is what you must do he says deny yourself self-denial is essential to true discipleship self-denial is essential to true discipleship let me give you a couple of scriptures to consider to build this argument you don't have to turn there in mark chapter 1 verses 16 to 20 this is what the bible says passing along the sea of galilee the Lord Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, "Follow me, same word, and I will make you fishers of men." And immediately they left their nets and followed. Going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending the nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Self-denial is literally, the Greek term self-denial, this is what it literally means. Forgetting or forsaking one's self. Forgetting or forsaking one's self. That's a big, big cost. You say, uh, have we got an example of that? Well, how about the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2? Where he is prior to his incarnation, prior to him actually coming in the form of a man, he is the most glorious one. He's the creator of all that we see. The Lord Jesus, the Bible says in Colossians chapter one, he is all of that. And what does he do? He condescends to men. He denies his former estate in order that he might come in the form of a man and be a servant, take on that form and die on a cruel, rugged old cross for our sin. That is the epitome, is it not? Of self-denial. You say, why do I have to do this? Very simply because he did it for you. He denied all that he was and is, not in the sense that he uh, removed his deity, but all the glory that he had, all that he was in the heavenly kingdom as the sovereign king and ruler of all things to condescend to men of low estate, Emmanuel, God with us, he came with that self-denial. Philippians chapter 2 is what that's all about. Let this mind be in you. What mind? The mind of self-denial. How is it then that so many of us as Christians are unwilling to deny anything, let alone most things? The philosophy of the world and the culture today is we must take care of number one. Isn't it? We hear that all the time. We're going to look after number one here. I mean, we hear that in the shopping center. We hear that every. We're going to look after number one here. Now, the Christian believes that too. But the only difference is this. The number one has changed. That's the difference. We must take care of number one. But who's number one? No longer I but Christ who lives in me. He is number one. He is elevated. He's exalted above all things in the life of a Christian because he's Lord of all, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the chorus of the redeemed. Jesus is Lord. He is number one now. I'm not. I'm dethroned. He has been enthroned. That's what salvation is. At the very core of it, he has become my Lord whereas I was in control before. I was king of my life. You see, self-denial is the opposite of what is seen in Philippians 2.21. Nobody was willing because they were so interested in their own selfish pursuits, not the things of Jesus Christ. That's how we got to this matter of discipleship this morning. See, self-denial is the opposite of selfishness. Self-denial is the opposite. They are antithesis opposites in fact one commentator wrote this some of you may have seen me post this online recently i thought it was incredible selfishness is the negation of god it's the poison ivy in the garden of life the rust on the weapons to be used in the battle of life it's the moth that ruins the garment of service it's the mud in the stream of life It's the smoky hearthstone in life's house. It's the mouse that gnaws destructively. Selfishness is the atrophy of spiritual muscles. It's the arthritis of spiritual prowess. It's the suicide of greatness. It's the downfall of the soul. Selfishness. Before we move on, I need to explain just a little bit more about what this is matter of discipleship and specifically self-denial really looks like. Uh, Luke chapter 9 verses 57 to 62 I'd like to read to you please if you want to just turn the page there. Talking about a high cost of discipleship this first point being this matter of self-denial. In verse 57 this is what happens. As they were going along the road someone said to him I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough, looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Some of us today are going to be tempted to say, surely this is not what Jesus really meant. Surely Jesus is not saying that if you follow me, I may not have a place to lay my head. No, that's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. What the Lord Jesus is saying, don't you worry, I tried to cut the Greek every way I could to try and understand how this works and try and fit it into my own personal understanding of what I think it should be. You know what this means? It literally means this, that if you follow Jesus, it's not automatic that you will lose home. That's not what this says. But if you follow me, you must be prepared to lose everything for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what this says. It's not saying you're not allowed to bury your dead. That's not what the Lord Jesus said here. He's just saying, you are no longer concerned with the priorities of this life. You are concerned with the priorities of my kingdom now. If you are mine, you are prepared to lose absolutely everything where necessary, where he removes it, not that we go and sell all our possessions just to get rid of them because we want to live that kind of a life. That's not it either. But it is a preparedness to say, Lord, absolutely anything and everything is yours. You may take my home, you may take my car, you may take my husband or my wife or my children or my church or my reputation or my finances or or any aspect of my life, it doesn't matter what it is, I am prepared to relinquish that as your disciple because I am first and foremost yours. And everything in my hand is yours anyway. You gave it to me and I recognize it. That's what true discipleship and true self-denial is. And these three individuals went away very sad when they realized, wait a second, you mean I may not have a place to rest my head? Wait a minute, you mean I may not be able to do what I'd like to do in this physical life? You mean I may not be able to uh, go and attend to the things I want to do? And the Lord Jesus says, are you mine or are you not? Am I in control? Am I Lord or am I not? Discipleship. Turn with me one one more place, if you would, to Luke 14. By the way, I found as I did some study in the book of Luke that Luke seems to to be the gospel that is most concerned about this matter of discipleship, which I think is very interesting because he's the only Gentile author. Isn't that an interesting thought? Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. If you weren't concerned or convicted yet, you probably will be with this one. Uh, Verse 25, Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, comes to me, follows me, is a part of me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He gives a couple of illustrations there. Uh, and then if you'd have a look and see verse 33. So therefore, one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Is that strong language? That's strong language. Now, let me just pause a moment so that people don't leave from here and go, okay, so from here I need to go and hate my husband and my wife and my family. That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying. He is not saying you must hate them. This is hyperbole. This is uh, an English uh, concept used here to denote your passionate, radiant love for me must be so great that everything else pales into insignificance. I cannot come to Christ and hang on to anything at all there is nothing in this life that i can hold on to and say i'm coming to you lord but i'm bringing this with me is what he said he is saying that he alone must fill our vision in order for us to become a disciple and then as a christian that's how it's supposed to be forevermore the intention was never i i've become a christian now i've handed everything over to the lord and now i'm taking this back and i'm taking that back and i'm taking this back and he's no longer lord of my life but he was at the beginning. He's not anymore. That was never the intention. The intention was he's Lord now and he will be Lord forevermore. That's the concept. See, here's the problem with modern day preaching on evangelism is that we say, hey, listen, just come to Jesus, just as you are, come to Jesus, hang on to whatever you want and he'll save you and rescue you. That is not true. You've got to relinquish everything in order to come to Christ. If he's not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And so I say, when I come to him in salvation initially, I say, Lord, I am bankrupt. I may have all of these things, but my soul is bankrupt. I cannot do a thing. And so I come to you relinquishing every other avenue that I have that I worship as an idol in order to turn my attention toward you. That's how someone is saved. I fear for our congregation here. I fear that there are those, even in this room perhaps, who may have a form of spirituality but have never relinquished the whole thing. See, lordship is everything. Discipleship is everything. It's not, I'm hanging on to this and I'm hanging on to that, or I'm not going to let this go. It is everything. And it's the same as we walk as a disciple. If I'm going to follow in his footsteps, I'm prepared to leave and forsake all to follow him. Self-denial is so hard, is it not? Because... We want to be in charge. We want to do our own thing. We're still working in this body of flesh. The folks at Rome that Paul is so saddened by were concerned with their own ease, their own safety. And they were unwilling to deny themselves and pursue Christ. Let me ask us this morning, what stands in the way of your self denial Whatever that is, and whatever you take a moment, if you're going to be honest before the Lord, if there really is something there, whatever that is, or whatever that item or that individual is, that is the idol that must be removed. Whatever stands in the way of me saying, Lord, here I am, all of me. You do whatever you want. I'm yours. You bought me with your precious blood. Whatever stands in the way, that. Is the idol that you say, Lord, strip the idol from my life. I I, I can't do this myself. I want a renewed vision of you. I want to be able to deny everything. Let me tell you what happens if you don't do this. For Demas hath forsaken me, 2 Timothy 4.10, having loved this present world. Fellow laborer of this man, Paul, in Rome, right now, in just a couple of years down the track, leaves the cause of Christ because as he was going through a particular region, saw some things in that region while he was ministering with Paul and said, I want that, I'm sticking around here. And he stayed there and he uh, forsook his testimony, but more importantly forsook the Lord Jesus because he loved this world. We read in, in 3 John about a man called Diotrephes. And Diotrephes in 3 John verse 9, the Bible says, he liked to put himself first in the congregation. And he is forever marred in the scriptures because a man would not relinquish himself. What about Jonah? Jonah is a classic example of someone who, said, who heard God's call, had already served the Lord before. He was a prophet long before Nineveh came about. We read that in the Old Testament earlier. But here's Jonah, this call is incompatible with what I want to do. I'm going the other way. You know what he did? He said, I am not going to deny myself and obey God's call in this. I'm going to go my own way. And off he ran down this way. And it was the Lord who constantly came back to him and and brought about situations in his life that finally restored him to that place. I wonder where God wants you. I wonder what God wants you to be doing with your life. I wonder how many more men there would be in our country who would be willing to teach and preach the word if they answered the call of God, laid aside their self-interest and served Jesus Christ first. I wonder how many more godly, virtuous women there would be in our Australian land, Christian uh, churches that are saying, I'm going to uh, ignore my own self-interest in order to be what God wants me to be. I wonder how many more husbands would love their wives as they ought to because they're laying aside their own interests and the things they want to do to serve and love their wives as Christ loved the church. I wonder how many more children would be obedient to God and to their parents when they say, I know that I want to do this, but I love my parents in the Lord and I am going to obey. See how it changes everything? A whole community, a whole church is changed when people become true disciples of Jesus Christ. Or I will let everything else go. I wonder, are you willing to pay the price just on this first one? Self-denial. Let me give you one other example before we move on. Moses, what a man of God. Moses in Hebrews 11, 26. He considered the, repro- the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures in Egypt. Do you know what was at the foot of Moses? Do you know what would have been his had he not said, I am a Jew and I will follow Christ. That's what Hebrew says. It says that he had an understanding of who the Messiah was going to be. He didn't know it was going to be Jesus Christ, but he understood that the Messiah was coming. So he left all of this in order to be with his people and he esteemed the riches of Christ greater worth than all of that that was in Egypt. Denied himself. Here's a summary of this first point. Self-denial comes only as a result of seeing and savouring the value of Christ above all else. Self-denial comes by seeing and savouring Christ above all else. That's how we become people who can deny ourselves. Is that us? Second thing we see here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 the second mandate the second command is to bear one's cross bearing one's cross if you cross the first hurdle there's another great hurdle here for us take up your cross daily again may i say that this is such a misinterpreted verse today by pulpiteers and pastors constantly all the time we somehow have this idea that bearing one's cross is the idea of well we're going to have some pain and some suffering and that's true and that's not that's not something that i'm debating but here's what this here's what it meant in the palestinian jewish mindset if you saw someone bearing a cross do you know what was going to happen next they were going to be on it they were going up a hill just a little ways out of jerusalem to be mounted onto that cross to die for whatever their crime or sin was. So when the Lord Jesus says this to this congregation who are familiar with seeing men carry their cross, in fact, the man in their story is shortly going to carry his own cross, but he can't bear under it so they get someone else to do it. They would see someone carrying their cross and instantaneously, fatality, death. He's about to die. We have somehow minimised this concept. We've somehow minimised this concept to mean, well, it's carrying something sort of heavy. Not with the end result, but, you know, we're, we're bearing our cross. It's a difficult thing. You know what the Lord Jesus is really saying? He's not necessarily saying we're all going to be martyrs. That's not what he's necessarily saying, although that's in the picture. Because if you look at Luke 9 and verse 24, which follows straight on from that text, have a look at what it says. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake will save it. He's talking in some senses of our physical life as it relates to martyrdom. But I believe that he is also talking about dying daily to ourselves. Dying daily to ourselves. And we know that's to... The truth in the scriptures because the apostle paul again who's in rome right now interestingly enough to the church at rome this is what he writes romans 8 13 for if you will live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live just before philippians the apostle paul has written the book of colossians to the church at colossi this is what he says to the church at colossi in chapter 3 and verse 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you daily constantly mortify the king james says your members did you know that you're called to die daily so what do you mean obviously not physically spiritually every single day we are to kill the flesh We are to make that decision that I will not allow the flesh to rule my life and ruin me. I am going to kill and mortify it by the power and the grace of God. I will walk in the spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. To take up one's cross is, yes, to suffer. Is, yes, to have pain. Is, yes, to all of those things. But it's also to die to ourselves. To put ourselves back up on that cross flesh wise and say i will not let the flesh rule here suffering and hardship and persecution is synonymous with being a disciple of jesus christ why are we surprised at that today we're surprised because we live in a western comfortable culture don't we we live in a materialistic comfortable place where occasionally when the power goes out we sort of go oh, hang on What's going on? But apart from that, we go home, we turn on our air conditioner, we drive our nice car, we have all of these wonderful commodities in our life so that there's no real battle here whatsoever. But one day when that battle comes and that endurance is uh, required and that pain happens and the physical body is is, uh, enamoured with difficulty and pain and we're riddled perhaps with a sickness or, or someone is opposing us physically, then suddenly we say, this doesn't make sense. When in actual fact it makes perfect sense because discipleship is to bear one's cross and that may take many forms. Interestingly in the Greek it is custom made to bear one's cross. For example my cross is different to your cross. And your cross is different to that cross. Our crosses are different and we don't know what each of those are, but we all must bear the cross and in some way it will be painful and in some way it will be hardship. And I believe it is high time that the Church of Jesus Christ realises that we are called to suffer. We're actually called to suffer. You know, your calling to Christianity was also your calling to suffer. Now, if you go out there and preach the gospel like that, Let's see how many five-minute converts come. You say, hey, listen, folks, yes, your sins are forgiven, but recognize also that in this calling will come suffering. I think we'll find that the false converts will disappear pretty quick. But we're leaving that out of our gospel message. Because here's what uh, 1 Peter 2.21 says, For what credit is it when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. You're called to walk in his suffering steps. Philippians 1.29, we already looked at this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let me ask you, are you suffering? Are you suffering in some aspect? Because discipleship involves cross-bearing. And we don't say, Lord, take away the suffering. Take away the suffering. We say, Lord, strengthen me in this suffering. Lord, help me endure this because I know you're doing a work. James chapter 1, the trying of my faith works patience, endurance. And you're giving me, and you say, if I want wisdom, I can ask for wisdom so I know how to deal with it. It's never, Lord, take away the suffering. I can't handle it. In fact, the Apostle Paul, you recall in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, doesn't he? Uh, three times they ask the Lord to remove this Thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, no, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So I'm strengthened spiritually as I am weak here. That's exactly what uh, Paul said in Corinthians elsewhere where he said the outward is, is perishing. This body is perishing. But I'm renewed day by day in the spirit of my mind. You say, yeah, I want to be a disciple. I want to be a disciple. Hebrews 11:32 32 to 38 listen to this and what more shall I say again I believe this is Paul but you make your own decision on who that is for a time would fail me to tell you of Gideon of Barak Samson Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Women received their dead back by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. It, this is discipleship. This is, the, this is the hall of faith here. This is what we're seeking to become. It's not going to be this great life as the world sees it. Taking up one's cross signifies a willingness to go to any extent for Christ. Total commitment and passion for him. Have you got that? High cost of discipleship. The last thing that I want you to note, and I know I have uh, laboured long in some of these things, but I hope you would just give me a few more moments to consider this last thing. Obedience. 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 He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, obey me. Walk as I have walked. Walk in the way that I have told you to walk. Obedience. It's such a simple thing, isn't it? Obedience. It really is a simple thing. Here's a command, I do it. But it's really not that simple when it comes down to, so I have to do this instead of what i want to do here uh we see it with children all the time don't we that's why we sing the sunday school song obedience is the very best way to show that you believe but you know what a lot of the children have it but some of us adults really don't have that song down literally obedience is the very best way to show that you believe And why? Why do we obey? I'll tell you why we obey. If someone says we obey because we're told to, that's wrong. I'll tell you why we obey as a Christian. Because Jesus Christ obeyed his heavenly father in everything. If there was a moment in all of history where the son of God disobeyed the father, we have no reason to obey. But you know what? You know what the Bible says in John 14, 31? Jesus obeyed his father because he loved him. This is what it says. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So when you look at the Lord Jesus and you say, here is a man who submitted, who potasso, he came under everything that relates to his heavenly Father. How did he manage to do that? Well, simply because he loved his Father. Now, we know he's the perfect Son of God. And Sometimes we like to say, well, hang on, he's the perfect Son of God. So how is that possible? It's not possible for us to obey in everything. But we are to be just like him. Discipleship is to act and live as he did. And so he loves his father and he obeys him. Here is why we do it. In 1 John 5 verse 3. For for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I remember reading a story and I think it's a great illustration Uh, of a an individual who went to bible college they were training to be a pastor uh, and uh, the bible college had very very strict uh, requirements on what you wear to the college this is a number of years ago decades ago um, and how you look to go to the bible college and so on where things have changed a little bit like that and so you needed to wear a full suit to go to the bible college uh, and you were not permitted to have a beard at bible college obviously as a man okay in fact men were the only ones who were allowed to go. Um and so this particular individual who I was uh reading about he was told I I'm not he was told you're not allowed to have a beard. Now he had a a good beard. You know what I mean by a good beard? Like we're talking about a good beard, okay? Or not like, not like this, not patchy, but a good full-on beard. And he came to a point of having to question, am I going to surrender to this ridiculous notion that i am not allowed to have a beard at bible college and most of us would say come on that is a ridiculous concept that's a requirement that a beard you're allowed to have a beard at bible college but it was a real conundrum for this individual because he wanted to train to serve the lord in the ministry but in order to do that he needed to remove this long-term beard that he was you know very fond of a decision now you say Well, that's, that's not a fair, that's not a fair command over here. And perhaps it's not. But he was in a conundrum here. I want to serve the Lord. God's called me here. God's called me to this place. This is the rule. And what happened in him, you know what happened? His love for Christ. And his love for the long-term goal and vision of what Jesus was going to do in him and through his ministry caused him one morning to get out his razor and shave off that great big beard and go to the Bible college. And you know what happened? That was no longer a burdensome or grievous command because something greater than it had occurred. He loved the master more than the commandment. You know what happens for us? We look at the commands so often of Jesus Christ, and this is nothing like a biblical command, a Bible college beard command, but we look at the commands of Christ and say, that's way too high, that's cutting too high. We don't have to do that, surely. We look for ways to get around it instead of something else that we ought to do, which is say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. No command is burdensome. I love Him. I'd do anything for Him. He is my God. He rescued my soul. And if this is the requirement, then gladly will I do that. Gladly will I obey. I embrace the opportunity to show him how much I love him by obeying in something that I find hard. That's how obedience happens. Obedience that happens a different way becomes legalism. So we must focus our attention on our love for Christ in order that we would obey him effectively. See, we talk about this notion of lordship. Lordship. He's the master. You know, when you say, Lord, Jesus Christ, you are saying he's the king, he's the master. You better stop saying that if you're not prepared to come under his lordship. We say, dear Lord, in our prayer often, in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus and Christ are no big problem to us. Jesus, that simply means Jehovah's salvation, Christ the anointed one. But when you tack Lord on, you are saying you are in charge. You are the master who provided my salvation, who is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. That's what Lord Jesus Christ means. If he's truly Lord, then we will obey. We will submit. So in conclusion, I want us to note that Paul's indictment of the believers in Rome, which is where we began, was sweeping and severe. Don't you think? No one. No one would do this. They're interested in their own self-pursuits. But I fear greatly for us that this is true of the 21st century church. I hope it's not true of us, but maybe it is. Most will only serve Christ when the gain from such an endeavor is compatible with their own. If it makes me look good, I'll do that. Not if it's going to cost me. If this is going to cause me some grief, some pain, in other words, I'll only serve Christ to the extent that it ministers to my own needs and desires. That is not self-denial. That's the opposite. That's selfishness. So here is the, the point at the conclusion of all of this. We must come to a place where what we want is not even in view. What I am calling us to, what I am calling myself to, renewed, is radical Christianity. Radical Christianity. A Christianity that will obey the mandates of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Being willing to forsake all. We're saying in other words: surrender. Absolute surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. That's what we're talking about. Absolute surrender. It is standing up. And standing out in a generation of blasé, lukewarm, casual Christians and following Christ no matter what may come. I will do this. It doesn't matter where it takes me because I'm with him. As we close, there's one final thing I would like to do. And that is to read a portion from the Old Testament as our concluding thought. I'd have you turn with me please to Ezekiel chapter 22. And in this we close. I believe Ezekiel 22 and this passage of scripture, which I have referred to many, many times over the last 15 years of my preaching life, I believe it is just as relevant today, if not more so, if I may say that, than it was even to the people there in Israel To whom it was written, Ezekiel chapter 22, listen to the heart of God towards his people. In verse 23, Ezekiel 22, verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel that is, and he said, Son of man, say to her, that is Israel, you are a land that is not cleansed or reigned upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy. And have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Notice verse 30. And I sought for a man among them. Who should build up the wall. And stand in the breach before me for the land. That I should not destroy it. But I found none. I found none. Therefore. Because there are none. I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. You say, what's the point of reading a text out like that? Very simply, that that is not the foreign nations to whom God is speaking. That is his Old Testament church, and you know what I mean by that. That is his people in the Old Testament. That's his called out ones. Friends, this is our generation of Christianity looks just like this. And God is looking, I believe, for men and women to stand up as true disciples in the midst. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, thank you for a time in your word. I I realise that there is much, much that has been said today and I pray that every... Every word that has been said would be helpful and fruitful to us. Lord, we uh, we live in perilous times and we live in a time where true discipleship is not by any means the norm, it's the exception. Uh, and Lord, in a world that is growing worse and worse, delving deeper and deeper into sin and the church is following close behind, Lord, may we be here a beacon of truth. May we be here a a place where true disciples are loving and following the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would fill all our vision, that we would be able to say, as we sing in a moment, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though no one join me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross upon me. Lord, may that be a reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.